Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Welcome, guys, to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hall, and we are very excited. Well, I don't know who I'm saying we are, but I am very excited. I'm sure all of you guys are very excited right now because we have a long-awaited Q&A with Mike Isratel, um, who has been traveling across the globe, li literally across the entire globe, um, because he came to the UK and we brought him over to do a fantastic hypertrophy seminar, which went down like a storm. And I can't believe it was so long ago now. I mean, it's, it must be, it's over a month. Um, and Mike's been across doing presentations across Europe, in Australia, um, and been uh, now is now settled back at home, but working hard as ever. Um, so yeah, how are you doing, Mike? I know you just said we chatted a little bit and you're in a mini cut right now. Um, and everything, you seem quite happy that you're home. <laughs> totally. I love the regularity of a programmed lifestyle. Um, traveling is fun every now and again, but I get really confused as to what the hell my purpose on this world is if I'm just <laughs> supposed to go to places and enjoy myself. Um, when I can be grinding in the gym, when I can be eating programmed meals, when I can have a regular scale to wean on get to sleep in my bed and when I can put out a ton of intellectual content, write books and film videos and stuff like that, I start to feel whatever the opposite of human, but still good is again. So um, yeah, it's really awesome. So I'm super happy to be back. Traveling is great, but you know, it's like all, all good things eventually get to be meh. So it was a uh, good, good timing for me to come home. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. And actually I should point out if anyone's been keeping up with Mike and on Instagram, particularly, there's been some graphs coming out that have been, I mean, it really, really makes some of these concepts that we talk about in the podcast very clear. So if you're not following Mike over on Instagram, I'll make sure there's a link below so you can go and follow him straight away because they're, they're really clear um, over on Facebook as well. So yeah, definitely get on those. Um, but I know Mike loves uh, getting straight into the Q&A and not having too much chit chat, even though I, I could go for far too long. So we'll dive straight into the first question. Um, and I'm going to avoid saying names just because I think I screw them up so much. I'm just going to go straight for the questions and let I have the names. I, here, so I can let those enjoy your know. name screw ups. <laughs> uh, but if you don't want to, that's fine. OK, I can say this name because he's actually a client. Uh, Marco Sturper. Um, OK, I think it's Marco Arella Sturper, but he'll probably call me out. Um, I know we've talked about, and he's asked, first of all, where to place metabolite training. Um, and he said on a separate day, mid-workout, end of the workout. And I think just so those aren't, who aren't aware, in terms of um, actual mesocycles, it's kind of like the final mesocycle before we're entering a, prime, uh, a maintenance phase, sorry, a resensitization mm -hmm. phase. So, but in terms of actually programming it within a mesocycle where are you putting it within the microcycle or even within workouts um where would the metabolite pump style training be placed for you mike yeah it's a really good question 
what I can, I can't give any definite answers because it's, I just don't know. But what I can give is places to for sure not put it. Um, it would be difficult to have an entire workout of only metabolite stuff because metabolite stuff really drains the shit out of you. It's not, um, it's very fatiguing in accumulated fatigue for sure. Not exceptionally so compared to heavy weight comparably, but it's, in, it's really acutely fatiguing so that doing anything right after an exercise of metabolite work is really tough to get overload at it again. So I would say that if you had a, a whole day of metabolite work, uh, that would be really tough to get any good value out of the later exercises. Like if you did like, you know, chest metabolite, back metabolite, then legs metabolite, two exercises of each. The last leg metabolite exercise, I don't even know you'd be dead or vomiting or something like that. So maybe a whole day is, is probably not the way I would go about it. Um, we can also exclude another possibility or rather advise against it with a pretty good probability of certainty. Doing metabolite training before you do your uh, conventional uh, heavy volume training is uh, really not great because you know when you do your conventional heavy volume training, you actually get some sequestration of metabolites already. You get a pre-fatiguing of the musculature and doing heavy training before metabolite training probably doesn't really interfere much with metabolite training. Uh, on the other hand, doing metabolite training before heavy training tires you the hell out and kind of violates the whole purpose of doing heavy training, which is to lift weight of a sufficient intensity um, to, you know, to go after those kinds of intensity-mediated adaptations, perhaps growth of the faster twitch muscle fibers, et cetera, or growth of the slower twitch fibers through those pathways that are based on, you know, um, high force loading. So uh, basically metabolites probably shouldn't be done at the beginning of the workout, nor should they be sandwiched in the middle. That kind of leaves metabolite training as, as best done, you know, at the, during a metabolite phase it is by no means clear that metabolite training should be phasically structured. I prefer to do it that way. I think it's logical, but it's not for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's not a bad way to do it, certainly. But if you do a metabolite phase or however you do your metabolite training, whatever body parts you're training during that week in metabolite style, whatever days you focus more on those body parts, even if it's upper body versus lower body, pick one exercise for that body part to focus or for one of those body parts to focus, put it at the very end of your session, blast it out and then go home. Uh, and then the next day you come in, let's say it's another metabolite, do all your conventional high volume work first, because remember metabolite phase is not characterized by exclusively metabolite training. That'd be kind of insane. Um, and then after that, then you go and do your uh, metabolite for another. So for example, you do, you know, metabolite training for shoulders on Monday, metabolite training for biceps on Tuesday after good biceps and back work or something, metabolite work for legs on Wednesday after you know, good heavy squats, leg presses, and you might do like metabolite lunges or something like that. Um, which by the way, just to share with um, your viewers, a really fun metabolite uh, lunge thing is after your quads are already pretty well cooked from squats and leg presses or something like that, uh, God, this is going to be, people are going to, don't get rhabdomyolysis. So fun. Watch your, <laughs> fun, fun. Watch your total volume. Don't get crazy because it's possible to just do a ton and just go way too far. But especially once this develops into something that is um, 
close to uh, MRV those weeks, uh, close to overreaching, what you do is set yourself a reasonable and based on your abilities, a reasonable goal of total number of steps. And uh, you can use weight with these walking lunges or no weight, depending on how tired you are or how many steps you've made as a goal for yourself. But, you know, a typical thing for me is after some squats and leg presses, I'll do 60 total steps lunge style. So 60 total walking lunges. Usually, like if you get a part of a gym that has some lanes going back and forth, you can knock those out. Here's the rule. Um, if you can do about 20 to 30 steps without taking a break and at about somewhere between 20, so use a load and or be in a condition of fatigue, which basically makes you get close to failure somewhere between 20 and 30 steps of the 60, right? And then the rule is you want to wait between each step after this. So you lunge as many steps as you can, uh, almost a failure, one rep away. You don't want to go to failure and lunges. It's embarrassing. You're like, oh, let's fall over and look around. <laughs> Nobody saw that. You just pretend like you slipped on a banana peel. Um, and then, so one rep short of failure. Don't sit. Don't rest. Don't do anything. Just stand until the lactate just barely starts to clear out. We're talking about one to five seconds, closer to one at the beginning of, of, of those uh, reps after the close to failure point. So let's say you get to about 25 reps continuously, no rest. You start to really feel the burn. Stop. Another five or six until, until you get, an, again, one rep from failure. Stop. Breathe. Don't go anywhere. Don't sit down. Shake your legs out if you need to. Just a little bit until just a bit of that lactate. Basically, you want to buy yourself somewhere like two to six reps and then in these little mini sets you keep lunging until you hit a total of 60 reps um it would kind of be like uh borges uh you know uh myo reps right yeah. it just uh metabolite style myo reps uh it is an awful experience what i did <laughs> at one workout when i was in california with my fiance a couple weeks ago or like a month ago or so i was doing a very very high volume mass phase with metabolites I did heavy hamstring work because it was prescribed for that day, heavy good mornings. Um, I did my calf work. And then after that, I went to leg presses and it was a, a full range, very full range of motion, but a very light weight. I did a total of, I think, um, either 80 or 100 leg presses between uh, three or four sets. So these were like sets of 30 or 40, but I was in fucking agony. I would have to lean on everything because I couldn't stand anymore. And then I did, I think it was either 40 uh, lunges. I think I did 40 or 60. I did 60 lunges um, uh, in that style. And I uh, almost fell. And I don't mean fell like by accident. I mean like my legs almost gave out. And I was like, it was pathetic. Like I was making basically like a torture agony noise. It was like, uh, 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 and people were like looking at me, what the fuck's wrong with that guy? And it was awful. And I fell over afterwards. I didn't get up for a long time. And then I took a picture, which I actually put on Instagram of like the big, biggest leg pump I ever had in, in, in living memory. So it was a hell of a time. And um, yeah, I mean, this is uh, just, that is why you don't do this first and then try and do your typical kind of, more heavier tension type training. So um, no, that was a really good explanation. I think exactly something I want to kind of maybe clarify for listeners and maybe for myself as well, is you hear a lot of like, there's Maya reps, there's rest pause, there's like all these different techniques, drop sets. 
in effect, they're all trying to achieve the same thing, just getting a pump. And it's just via kind of lighter weights generally and shorter rest periods. Is that correct? Kind of is that, I mean, to, just so people don't feel kind of like they're missing out on something if they're not doing this certain different method, is it simply just to kind of actually build up that blood and kind of metabolite? There's a very good chance that, that metabolites themselves uh, activate growth uh, independently or on top of uh, resistance. There's also some good consideration that because of the metabolite effect, um, we actually develop a lot of fatigue, which makes us have to get to higher levels of muscle activity, um, which taxes motor units that are normally not taxed. Um, it's probably, uh, I'm not sure which one it actually is. It's probably some combination of the two. Um, and either way, whatever kind of techniques to use to get there, it's still the same goal drop sets, supersets, myo reps, um, giant sets like the lunge thing. Um, it's all two, you know, very similar ends. And I, I don't at this juncture have any advice on which one's better than any other, but I will say that because we know that the principle of variation is relatively important to bodybuilding, that um, you should pepper in all of them every now and again. The cool thing about metabolite training is you can get so creative and do it in so many cool ways. I mean, you can use a variety of machines or free weight movements. You can do a variety of these uh, different things. And whenever you have a chance to do metabolite training, um, there's no need to do the same kind more than once every couple of years. And the cool thing is, is that um, we want to do a lot of the same kind of training to present the directed adaptation we need to get stronger, to get bigger, in compound heavy basics mm -hmm. and in the fundamental core of your training, but it's uh, you know there's no there's no need to you know worry about sequential overload in metabolite training. The overload is self evident, <laughs> so it's one of those things where I think you, that's when you really can spice it up. I, I, I'm really big on spicing it up for when you can really benefit from variation and when it's not important that you do something in a in in a, a progressive fashion that lasts you know years of progression. And I'm at the same time very much against spicing it up in things that shouldn't be spiced up. You know, people will say like, you know, so I'm doing bent rows, but like I like pause at the chest for a second and then I put the barbell down and rest two seconds or like I'd have two second eccentric, this and that, where I could pull to this angle and that angle. And at some point you're like, how the fuck do you know you're getting stronger, first of all? And second of all, you're giving up the meat and potatoes of the effectiveness of this exercise by transforming it so much and doing way too much variations. You can't even present a meaningful overload over time. You don't know if you are. So I think it's really uh, metabolite training is one of those that offers you that creative, you know, that, that, that ability to get your creativity to be expressed mm -hmm. uh, while at the same time letting you focus on, I don't want to say boring, but the structured approach to the rest of your training of yeah. conventional exercises performed in a regular fashion in accumulated intensities and volumes which is really the core of your program awesome and actually that's nice a nice segue to the second half of the question which is basically asking about how do we progress with metabolite training kind of on a week-to-week -week basis within that mesocycle do you add maybe if you're doing like a drop set would you add an extra drop set within there do you decrease rest periods what what could you do to try and progress it or yes. is there any need to? Totally. Well, there's definitely need. Everything mm -hmm. has to be programmed with progression. So within a mesocycle, you should stick to 
uh, the same uh, kind of every microcycle that you come back to, microcycle one, two, three, four, five, every single time you have that same session that you were doing, but in the next micro, the kind of metabolite work you should do should be the same kind. And you should, for a variety of reasons, just progress on it uh, in uh, a scaled fashion. Um, so yeah, you should absolutely progress and you should be tracking that progression. It shouldn't be just like, fuck it, let's do whatever. Cause you know, like some days you don't have as much energy or as much psychological desire to go as far. Mm -hmm. And and there's nothing really, you know, uh, metabolite training sucks and it's really challenging. You want to quit. So if you have an objective benchmark, I mean, like my, you know, counting rep totals, for example, yeah. like there's no part of me that really wants to do 100 leg presses. Fuck that. <laughs> But, uh, but that's, you know, one week it's 90, the next week it's 100, and the last week it's 110. And I look at the paper and I'm like, oh, fuck, that's just what I have to do. Um, so you do have to track it. The, well, the biggest thing I'll say is because of volume and total work is such a predominant both facilitator and probably overloader that leads to gains in muscle, in muscle size, that I wouldn't have any progression design that sacrificed volume progression uh, at the benefit of other forms of progression. Yes. And the biggest thing that comes to mind as the biggest caveat and the biggest warning is progressions that involve rest time decrements. It's very clear from the research that if you do too, enough rest time to decrease the total reps you do with a certain weight, you grow less and the rest mm -hmm. time does not make up for that shit. Yes, shorter rest time will enhance the metabolite effect. But we got to remember that it's very likely that the metabolite effect is, is, is maybe like one third as powerful of a hypertrophy stimulator as conventional training. So it's, it's, it's like replacing most of your cake with icing and being like, wow, we're still good to go. It's not a good idea. So uh, if you do shorten rest times, you have to concomitantly do that with a at least the maintenance of the total number of repetitions you do at a given weight, the total volume sets times reps times weight has to at least maintain the same. And then you can manipulate things like repetitions in reserve, rest times, et cetera, which rest time really is another way of uh, fucking with RIR when you think about it. Um, but at least keep the volumes the same. And I would say advance the volumes is probably good. So, so I would say go one or two reps shy of failure, more or less every single time in a metabolite training and just add total volume. So for example, um, if you did five drop sets of bicep cable, bicep curls, do six the next time, seven the next time, eight the next time, deload. That way there's no way that you're presenting less of a stimulus. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. As long as I guess yeah. you don't jack up the weight and then you're doing hardly any reps compared to the weeks prior. Totally, totally. And a lot of times like you just do one at a time. So you keep the same weights but jack up add sets or you keep the same weights, but add a few reps and add a few sets, or you can jack up the weight, but just make sure that your total repetition number, your total volume across the load spectrum is the same or greater. And then whatever other overload parameters you also did, uh, th those are fine. You know what I mean? It, it, it's one of those, I have a, you and I, I think talked about this in another podcast and somebody just linked it as an answer to a question on one of my Instagram or Facebook posts. If your goal is to get stronger and you have a five by five that you're supposed to hit, but you're too weak to hit the last sets of five, should you reduce the weight or should you reduce the reps and just still get the total number of reps, 25 reps at the given weight? Well, the answer and almost always, unless you're really worried about fatigue, and in which case you should just deload anyway, uh, the answer is, yeah, 
get the 25 total reps at that weight, even if it means doubles or triples, don't reduce the weight and do fives because there's nothing magical about fives. And you're now trying to keep a similar volume at the expense of intensity. But the primary driver of strength gains is intensity, given that the volume is sufficient. So why the fuck would you trade away intensity to chase volume when if for hypertrophy, that's a that's fine. You know, like if you can't if weight's so heavy that you can't get the volume you need, yeah, lower the weight totally because volume is a primary driver of hypertrophy. Yeah. But just the same way with intensity, it's the other way around. So, so just the same way as, you know, if you've got a total of, you know, five by five should really be seen technically as 25 total reps at a certain weight, do whatever it takes to get those reps at that weight, no matter the rep range should be the second recourse. Of course, the first one should be get the five by five, but if you can't do that, at least get all the reps in at that weight because the weight's the key driver. Just the same way with metabolite training, because it's within hypertrophy training, whatever manipulations you do, do not sacrifice total volume. Because if you do that, well, you're playing a trade-off with the biggest the biggest card in the stack. And mm -hmm. you don't want to do that. It, it, it's just like, you know, the training designs, you know, there's actually been quite a few studies done on uh, rest interval time and uh, hypertrophy and strength outcomes. And most of the studies say there's no effect because the studies haven't pushed rest time low enough or were controlled for total volume. But as soon as they had studies that didn't control for total volume, it was quite clear that rest time decrements beyond a certain point actually got worse hypertrophy, which is fucking crystal clear. Can you imagine coming up to a bodybuilder and be like, all right, you got to rest 30 seconds on everything that you're doing. And you're like, how the fuck am I supposed to get reps with 450 in a squat resting 30 fucking seconds? Like, well, I guess you just do your best. Well, he's going to get a couple reps here and there. It's going to be a shitty workout. He's going to be like, oh man, was that really hard? I'd be like, yeah, it was hard the worst way possible. Like I couldn't do the work I was supposed to do. So of course, it intuitively, it, it, it seems all wrong and very, it very much is. Now, the problem is now that sucks as far as good news for metabolite training. We don't have any. It's going to suck and it's going to suck more yeah. every single time. But hey, welcome to training. That's the overload principle writ large. Brilliant. And um, the final part of that question is how quickly do we adapt to it? Um, do you need to, you, I know you've said pepper in now and then we've spoken about the fact we adapt quickly to it. Are there actually any kind of is there any studies on this or is it just kind of personal experience? Uh, is there any way of getting around the fact you adapt to it? Could you keep metabolite training in, but change the variant you're using mesocycle to mesocycle? Is that enough to yeah. um, provide a, an overload? This is speaking exclusively on personal experience, the experience of my colleagues and the experience of the people I've helped train in various capacities. Um, it seems like metabolite training is just about, you would get about a couple weeks of it, uh, basically a mesocycle. And after that, it doesn't do a whole lot. And you got to take at least a mesocycle away from it for it to do a whole lot after that. Um, uh, whereas with heavy weight training, you can do it for four or five mesocycles on end and it's still uh, producing really, really good results. The way you know metabolite training doesn't really do anything, you do the same shit you used to, even harder shit, and you're no longer getting any uh, delayed onset soreness. You're no longer even barely getting a pump. You just get tired. Um, and, and, and the actual, the explanation there is quite, um, pretty, pretty obvious. Um, if you uh, do a lot of metabolite training, it, it's similar to pushing kind of in a, in a biochemical sense, it's in some sense similar to pushing like your lactate threshold really far mm -hmm. lactate threshold training and endurance that leads to a considerable rapid pace of endurance adaptations. Your muscles just get really good at clearing lactate really fast and they get really good at they could convert slightly to more slow twitch um and uh more slow twitch muscles tend to grow less 
which is bad. <laughs> and also mm-hmm. because they're not really good um, at buffering and, and getting rid of lactate, you have to do multiples to work to get the same effect. And by then, you're just doing a shitload of work at a very low intensity to get some kind of effect that's diminishing in size. So basically, you have to be out of shape. <laughs> you have to be out of shape for lactate stuff, for, uh, for metabolite stuff, for it to work best, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, it's just not a very good strategy. So I think that you could potentially, if you really like it, if you seem to really respond to it well, I think you could do it every other mesocycle, and it's cool. totally fine. Um, you can technically do it every mesocycle, uh, just with different body parts. So just per body part, every other mesocycle, you should probably rotate uh-huh. it. Um, and, uh, you know, from a psychological perspective, I really wouldn't recommend doing it every single, because if you alter, if you rotate the body parts, you could do it all the time. You know, metabolic training is psychologically difficult and it's super fun, but it actually gets old really fast. And if every single week of training for months, you have something in there that you have to drive super far, it gets super painful and really close to failure over and over. That's going to build up, I think, a lot of psychological fatigue in the sense that you're just not going to like training anymore. And you're going to just be like, God. Damn it! You don't look at your routine. You're like, Fuck metabolite training. There's a good reason to think to have a variation in your routine for psychological purposes as well. So if you get a chance to train heavy for a month and without any metabolite stuff, that both primes you physiologically for a responsive to metabolite stuff, but it also primes you psychologically and saying, "Ooh, I can't wait to get that pump and that burn." But after like a month, maybe two of pump and burn, you're like, "God damn it, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. It hurts." Maybe just some heavy training would be great. So I would mm-hmm. say it's good to cycle it in and out like that. No, yeah, I like that. And I've definitely experienced the same thing with my clients and myself kind of at the start of that when they've got some metabolite training there. And myself, I'm like really looking forward to it. And the first few sessions, like awesome. And then halfway through, I'm like, why did I like this? (laughs) Why do I want to do it? (laughs) Um, So yeah, I think that's a, a great answer. And that's the end of his question, and we can get to Fahim Shahan's question. <laughs> um, so, that that sounded great to me, man. Oh, good. So could Mike discuss some ways he's found to improve digestion um, to handle the quantities of food required in a bulk? And I know you talked about this on RP+, Plus, a slight plug for RP+, Plus there, because I think it deserves it, um, about Thanks. cardio helping digestion. Um, so I guess cardio is one way that you I mean, as long as you don't do excessive amounts could help. But is there anything else you found to help, Mike? It depends on the nature of the question. Um, I don't. I, I can't say that cardio necessarily helps digestion insofar as it helps um, use calories <laughs> and it helps uh, create more of a funnel for calories. Um, they burn off some fat and some energy so that you can eat more carbs and protein so that you can get bigger. Uh and obviously there's a trade-off there because after a certain while you're burning off so much that you're creating a lot of fatigue. So, man, you know, I'm probably the absolute most wrong person to ask this um, because I don't have digestion problems uh, unless I eat those fucking grenade protein bars with like uh, <laughs> only sugar alcohols and then I end up just shitting myself for a day straight. Um you know, I don't have problems digesting my food and absorbing nutrients from it. I never have. Um, I've been up to a drug-free 270 pounds. Um, I was fat, but I was muscular. Um, and, uh, you know, that, I mean, I had, I wouldn't say I had digestive problems, but, you know, I guess a good tip is don't fall asleep 
after eating a big meal because you could choke to death and die. I've almost <laughs> done that. Um, uh, so maybe, you know, if you really have to push your meals out pretty far because you're too sick to eat them earlier, fall asleep in a recliner chair or something. And after two hours, wake up and you'll be settled and go back to bed. Um, another one is... Um, I would say just eating tasty foods and making your food flavorful and delicious can make you forget about what seems to be digestive issues. Um, And and they've actually shown that digestive enzymes are secreted more profoundly, even at the anticipation of eating delicious food. So if it's a really good dinner cooking and you can smell it, you actually, your digestive tract starts priming itself to really fucking go at it. So if your food is tasty, even your digestive tract works better. Um, but but I, what I would say is, um, I, I go back to uh, my my Helmsian side on this, the dark side that is. <laughs> and um, I think something Eric Helms might say, in if he was asked this question, is exactly what rates are you trying to gain at that you have to eat so much food that digestion is a limiting factor? Um, I mean, if you gain at somewhere between where Helms and I kind of, you know, between where our extremes lie, maybe half a pound, uh, maybe anywhere between a quarter a pound to 0.75 pounds per week. I mean, I think every, I don't think anyone disagrees that that's at least a pretty good range of gain. Um, I mean, uh, Jesus, uh, you know, you don't have to eat that much food to gain uh, if you're gaining at the right pace, unless you're enormous, um, and, you know, if you're Brian Shaw uh, or uh, Eddie Hall, congratulations, UK, by the way. You now have the strongest oh, yeah. on the planet. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then I guess you see some, some concern for that. But uh, I'm just really skeptical when, when people say that oh, the, the digestion is a big deal. I think nutrient timing has a lot to do with it. So if you can lower the fats in your post-workout meal and your workout shake, and smash a fuckload of carbohydrates, 100 to 200 grams in the post-workout meal with very low fats, the funnel is so open due to GLUT4 and your muscles being super sensitive to glucose at that time that you can eat a, a meal that has almost 200 grams of carbohydrates in it if you if you average body weight. And um, you can uh, basically be ready to eat like an hour or two after that because it just goes, just disappears, right? Um, So using the workout window, especially the post-workout window, to eat a shitload of food and then taking your fats and spacing them out further is is, is another good idea. So, So for example, like if you just have consistently spread your fat over multiple meals, fat slows digestion down like crazy. So if you have to eat every three or four hours, you still have the last meal in you. Fuck, that sucks, right? Um, so maybe what you can do is eat lower fat meals with high carbs, high protein through the day, and then bias some of your fats toward the evening. Because who gives a shit? You're going to sleep. You don't have to eat again for eight hours, right? So if you normally have like, you can take like 10 grams of fat out of each meal and put, maybe have a meal at the end of the night, which is like 80 grams of fat in it, right? Which is a lot of really tasty shit, you know, peanut butter, this, almond, that, I mean, really good stuff. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're super full when you go to bed because you don't, you don't have to eat in three hours. So I think using that strategy is a good one. And the last thing I'll mention is, um, you know, uh, reducing the needless fiber in your food. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've kind of learned from Broderick uh, Chavez is 
you know, he's he's revealing to me. He usually doesn't put it in this way uh, because uh, he is an intellectual snob and hates thoughtlessness and tradition. But um, some, some things that the quote unquote the bros are doing that turn out to be correct for them and are wildly incorrect for most other people is, you know, you see people post like bodybuilders post their meals on Instagram and it's like white potatoes or red potatoes and steak. And you're like, what the fuck are the vegetables? And sometimes it's like a tiny little bit of vegetables. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? Why are these whole grain carbs? Well, you know, when you eat 900 grams of carbs a day, you can't fucking eat much fiber because the carbs, just trace fiber alone is going to fucking yeah. make you shit a storm. So if you have like these really good looking, like, you know, RP healthy diet templates looking meals, listen for the effort people who just want to stay fit and muscular and in shape, don't want to gain a ton of weight. That way of eating is awesome. But if you're pushing a ton of food and it's getting tough, reduce that fiber a little bit. You're not going to be in a position where you don't have enough fiber. It's so difficult with a bodybuilding diet to get too little fiber. And fiber fills you up a ton. It delays hunger a ton. It slows digestion. So it's really bad news if you have too much of it in your diet. Uh, you try to reduce a little bit of fiber. Don't eliminate your fruits and vegetables. Just like reduce a little bit of them. Maybe take your whole super whole grains and try to replace them with more regular grains. Like maybe if you're brown rice all the time, try some white rice. If you're doing sweet potatoes all the time, try some white red potatoes. Mm -hmm. If you're doing oatmeal all the time, maybe try, you know, something that, you know, cream of rice or something like that, or cream of wheat that maybe isn't, you know, as filling and as crazy slow to digest. Uh, those are thoughts on digestion. No, I think people want like, like special supplements to help aid their digestion. I think in the past I even took like, I think it was bull bile. I, I supplemented with like Holy bull shit. bile. Like it was like in a tablet form. It was. It, Did it work? <laughs> who knows? I had no idea what it was doing. Um, I just thought it was helping my digestion. I'd get more from my food than my body could digest when obviously our digestion is, is pretty damn good as it is. Um, I think it this, is. this reminds me of, uh, I made a hard gainer guide on my Instagram and the only things you didn't touch on that I had included in that guide um, was basically don't skip meals, don't skip breakfast, make sure you like don't intermittent fast, don't be silly with that sort of thing. Um, and then eat small and yeah. frequently, probably that's easier for you to get through more. I mean, you know what? I, I, those are really great points. Um, I, I don't, I, I sometimes, it depends on which I know you speak to a more general audience at Instagram than I speak to on your podcast, because the people that listen to the whole episode of this, they're much more serious. I assume they are already doing the basics pretty well. Like if yeah. you're skipping meals and then you tell me you have a problem gaining weight, go fuck yourself <laughs> very politely with all due respect and go get fucked because you're not, you know, it's people who are like trying to intermittent fast and trying to mass at the same time. They're like, okay, 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 let's explore that. You're intermittent fasting, yet you're trying to mass. Just think about that. It's fucking stupid. Don't do that, <laughs> right? So it's just clear, right? But but absolutely, absolutely really good point. So yeah, a space room. And the thing is, in a real world setting, do what it takes to eat when you have to, because every time you wait for too long, you are squishing the meals into a shorter interval later, and then that, yeah, it is going to be really hard to eat them. Uh, so yeah, if you know, you have to catch a meal or a bar here and there to keep the calories flowing in. Yeah. Um, one thing I can say, and this is less for digestion and more just for recommendation of, um, how to keep getting calories in, um, 
you you got to do what it takes even on the go oftentimes to make sure that you're getting what you're getting um and that that is is annoying but you chose to be the person who wants to gain weight for example i was um i just finished that crazy leg workout actually that i was talking about in california and my fiance had to go um i think she had to go to the bank and uh like take care of some money stuff and then we were going to go out to eat a big post leg workout meal the thing is the bank was going to take enough time to where there was too much distance between my shake and the next meal i would have probably like gone hyperglycemic and passed out but in addition to that i would have missed out on an opportunity to eat more that day especially at a very sensitive time of uptake so what did i do i had to go to another store anyway so instead of walking from the bank right to the store i walked over to the gas station bought like three power bars and a banana, which have very little fat, a ton of carbohydrate and a little bit of protein too, um, and smashed those. It was enough protein, uh, very low fats and tons of carbs. Like there were three peanut butter flavored power bars. That's kind of fucking disgusting. Like the first one coats your mouth, the second one gets stuck <laughs> in your teeth, and the third one you just have to jam down with pure willpower. But hey, I got, I got what I got. I, I, that's part of the process. So if, if you're, you know, okay, I have trouble eating, but I'm super busy. No, you're not. You're not that busy. Yeah, sure. You're busy. Do what it takes to make sure you get the meals in on time. Like you said, so that your meal interval until the next one, everything is clear. Cause if you're like, Oh, I'm just an hour late for this meal that cuts an hour from your digestion time. And then only two, instead of three hours later, you have to eat the next meal. And you're like, Oh my God, I can't, are you kidding me? I can't even eat anything. And then you're in a, then you're in a really bad situation. So I guess liquid meals would be another one, maybe sparse in some liquid meals, um, shakes and stuff like that. But, um, you know, uh, I think most people can get away with eating mostly whole foods and be just fine. And, and, and just, just to add one really quick thing, if you're the kind of person that struggles a little bit when you're dieting with hunger and with lack of feeling of fullness, use your mass phases as an opportunity for therapy. Uh, and by therapy, I mean the chore, get it to be a wonderful chore of having to eat enough food. Because if, if for several weeks you look at food as way too much and it's a chore, that literally buys you months of psychologically free dieting. It really does. There's no – I can't um, – you have to experience this, and I'm sure you have yourself, Steve, to where you stuff yourself enough on a mass phase – you can't wait to cut. And it's not like, um, it's not an immature childish, like, Oh, I'm super excited for rain when it's sunny for too long. And then it starts raining and you fucking hate it. Cause you remember rain sucks. It literally is a lasting effect, like months to where you look, I was, I've been like six weeks into a diet before and been like, thank God I'm not stuffed all the time. I still remember how that was. I still fucking hate it. And it takes me weeks more to get into a situation where I'm back to quote unquote normal. And then another couple of weeks to where I'm starving again. But by then, you know, it's the end of the diet or the show or whatever. So when you're struggling to eat food, but you're making it work, remember you're investing psychologically into the next cutting phase and it, it, I swear to God, it pays off and it's a long-term payoff as well. Yeah, I can, it, it hasn't happened to me a lot. Like I can just eat and I have never had the problem of being like unable to eat or digestive issues. But I can remember a time I made like a, it was like a Greek yogurt casein bowl and it was a bad idea. I, I couldn't finish it and I left it by my bed because I thought if I wake up in the middle of the night, I'll eat that. Uh, I, I didn't, I, could, I couldn't do it. Um, so no, that that's a brilliant answer, I think. And I hope our audience, and I'm going to say our audience know the basics, so they should be getting all that stuff right. 
Um, his second part of that question is, um, he said, what value do you place on intra-workout nutrition? Uh, I know you've written about this in the RP Diet book. I know that you're thinking about, well, you're releasing a new one at some point, which I'm very excited for, I'm sure the audience is. Um, so have you got any kind of advancements on what you suggested within the book or, um, yeah, what about intra-workout? You think if you train really early in the morning before you eat anything, intra-workout can improve your performance even if you train for less than an hour. I think if you train for more than an hour, um, intra-workout nutrition can really potentiate your performance in – can you see me? Yeah. Uh do you have the time really quick? Yeah, it's 10 to the next hour. Okay. Let me go. Let me go plug in anyway. Cause my phone's telling me I'm like short on batteries. I don't want to like uh, just cut out for no reason. So let me plug in. Um, so um, if it's longer workouts than an hour, you can potentiate some performance at the tail end of the workout with some intra workout stuff. Um, at there's not a huge advantage in intra-workout nutrition. And there is one possible minor exception related to the concept we were just discussing. And that exception and concept relation is that, you know, when you have a very tough time eating your total number of calories for the day, you can add some calories in the intra-workout shake. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. The only thing you have to juggle <laughs> is that you don't want to take too much of that shake in and get sick during the workout. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's a fine idea, but sometimes people get away with it or get carried away and they go, oh my God, that's right. I didn't even eat during training. They have 50 grams of carbs and 25 protein after the first two exercises and then they're vomiting <laughs> on their third. So for workout can be a good time where I'll put it, I'll put it this way. Um, intro have, if you're struggling with massing, you're struggling with getting enough calories in, get in as much intra workout nutrition in the forms of only simple carbohydrates, a very fast digesting carbs and fast digesting protein get in only as much carbohydrate and protein as you can tolerate without degrading the quality of your workout or making you sick. But that can be opportunity to smash another 200 calories during that workout, whereas normally the workout would have had nothing in it. And then have your post-workout shake just the same right after. And instead of the workout window being a time where you didn't eat anything, you just burned energy off, it can be a time when you're continuing the feeding process. Mm -hmm. And I guess... So on a related note to that, we talked, I mean, you kind of touched on the composition of that shake. So we'd want it to be something kind of sugary, easy to, to digest. So a carbohydrate and some additional protein as well. Yeah, I would say that, you know, um, the ratios are a little bit less clear and we'll address that in the rewrite of the book. But mm -hmm. um, very fast digesting carbohydrates, uh, glucose, dextrose, where you guys have in the UK, glucosate or whatever. Um, yeah. Uh, something like that and whey protein uh, is a great source because anything is so it during the workout your digestion and absorption is pretty heavily impaired if you're training hard and if you have anything more complicated than that more difficult to digest it's actually just going to sit there 
until after the workout is done. And sometimes it sits there and makes you throw up before the workout's done. So definitely keep it simple, whey and super simple carbohydrate. And apart from outside of the like higher volume, longer sessions, and also with training early in the morning, are there any other times where maybe it's not necessary, but you think it could be provide further benefit? Maybe, uh, for example, I'm training twice per day. So I'm doing kind of my big compounds in the morning and then isolation movements in the evening. And so I've been having that kind of shake to get some kind of try and aid recovery as quick as possible in a sense um, before going into the evening or even when people are dieting and they kind of their, their sessions, maybe they're not even that high volume, but they take a long time. I guess that mm. is the, the time element. Would it be something of benefit there? Yeah. I think if you're training multiple times a day, the, um, the argument for all facets of peri workout nutrition become much more profound. So yeah, an intra shake there would set you up for better glycogen replacement right after. Um, so that's a good idea. Another good scenario. Um, outside of those, you know, if you're mass gaining, you don't have a problem taking in food and you have some workouts that are shorter, not having an intra workout shake is really not a big deal at all. Okay. So. Perfect. Uh, I know have we got time for maybe one more question or are we one more? Sounds good. Cool. So Tom Fern has asked, um, can a tight muscle restrict hypertrophy because of reduced range of motion? Um, and if it can, how would you deal with that during a training session? Um, I'll have to skip that question. It's outside of my area of expertise. I don't even know what the thinking... technical definition of a tight muscle is. I would ask uh, Dr. Quinn uh, Hanock would, uh, would be a good person to ask that question. Yeah, I was thinking maybe refer to something quick, some of Quinn's work. Um, so we'll go to Jonas Linkus who's asked, how can one identify a non-responder to hypertrophy training? Uh, what, and then what can they do if, if they think they're a non-responder? Um, and given they're doing all the scientific principles, do they just need to trust the process, I, I would assume? But. Uh, yeah, this is a non-responder is a term that came out of a, uh, a couple of papers that they did, I think, back in the early 2000s or late 90s. Um, where very short-term studies, some individuals seem to gain no muscle at all. And Greg Knuckles actually just wrote about this. Um, uh, there have been many studies since then, which based on individualizing the training have shown that there's maybe not such a thing as a non-responder, just a thing as differential responders. Um, you know, from just a theory of science perspective, it would just be very, very unlikely that you could have true non-responders. I mean, you're talking about the ability to hypertrophy muscle fibers is um, evolutionarily older than the human brain. It's older than than than, mammal than the, the mammalian lineage. You know, lizards and snakes can hypertrophy. <laughs> um, it probably goes back to the first multicellular organisms. Not having that, it, it would be like as surprising as not having a fucking heart or some shit like that. Like, it's up there for sure. Maybe even more <laughs> fundamental because muscle contraction and, and remodeling predates the heart because the heart is composed of muscle. So, um, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> there's of course a normal distribution of bell curve about every ability. And some people could have the hormonal environment and the internal regulatory environment genetically, which could make muscle growth exceedingly slow, so slow that it would be undetectable for months and years on end. Um, that's definitely a possibility. And um, 
the thing is, is that that afflicts maybe one percent of the population, charitably, probably less. So the probability of, of being that person is very low. There's a more of a chance that you're making some errors in application or in measurement. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about those really quickly. Errors in application, you could have. Um, so your MAV will refer to the uh, the space between your minimum effective volume and your maximum recoverable, the productive growth window, your maximum adaptive volume. Uh, your MAV could be much lower, much higher than you think it is, and, and then you're skipping it all together mostly when you're training. So some people say, I'm not growing much, but they tend to be people with really high maximum adaptive volumes when those windows are really high. And then what ends up happening is you know, they train with sets of, you know, five sets or 10 sets per body part per week. And it turns out their MAV only opens up at 20 sets and closes at 30 or something. Mm -hmm. They just barely ever fucking grow. It's like, you know, would you grow from several triples uh, per week? Like, no, you fucking wouldn't, but they're doing the equivalent of that based on their high, you know, high response genetics. Um, Another possibility is that they have very low MRV uh, or sorry, very, very low MRV and MAV. Um, and they're just doing way too much all the time. Uh, and then, then certainly, you know, that's a problem. So a good thing is, is to try to find, uh, where your recovery from training microcycle to microcycle is impeded. Um, and then, and then train in, in, in most, spend most of your training just in the, in the several, you know, in the five to 10 sets shy of that most of the time then you can be relatively certain, even if you can't detect gains, that you're in a productive training area, um, pushing it almost as hard as you can, which almost all individuals will grow their best, you know, under MRV, uh, not too far under it, but kind of just under it. Um, So find your MRV and and train just under it for the most part, uh, take proper deloads and rests, and, and, um, and then you're good to go. Obviously make sure your nutrition and stuff is in check. Um, A lot of that has to do with calories, you know, if you don't have amazing genetics and you don't gain weight, you probably won't gain much muscle either. So a lot of people think they're just going to gain weight automatically, but the problem is they're, they're training just fine. They're just not a very good eater, um, and they miss out on the raw materials for reconstruction. That's, of course, really, really bad, um, right? So, so far, so with me so far, so yeah. just make sure everything you're doing is on the money and uh, give it some time. Um, gain some weight. See if you get stronger. If you gained weight, you know, gain half a pound to a pound a week for 12 weeks on end, give it a break, then try again a couple months later. If you've gained strength from those for reps, you've put on muscle no matter what you look like. So maybe you're just going to put it on really slow. And as far as what can you do if you're a hard gainer, uh, I think there's one obvious recourse is if you have a really low testosterone levels genetically, you might not know about that. If you've given it a good shot and nothing works, go get your testosterone levels checked. Um, they might be low. And if they're very clinically low, you get prescribed testosterone and then you'll start gaining like crazy if that was the problem. Um, other than that, I think uh, some individuals will kind of have to accept that their rate of gains is not going to be as high as they wished. And, those people have a choice, uh, same choice as everyone else, as to, to continue to invest a lot of their time into trying to grow, uh, learning a lot on the way and being really good coaches in the end. 
or maybe not investing a lot of time into the process and choosing to do other things with their lives. And people forget there's like 50,000 other things you can do with your life other than getting jacked and lean. Um, but a lot of those things are really great. You know, can you imagine if, um, you know, like the cellist, uh, Yo-Yo Ma is, you know, is one of those, maybe the best cellist of all time or something like that. And, you know, he's composed for movies and stuff and is basically an unbelievable musician. Can you, can you imagine if he never really, he took up cello because he was just like mired in an underground gym somewhere and trying to get big. Mm-hmm. He, let's assume for a second, I'm not sure if this is true. Let's assume he just has shitty genetics. He'd just be a guy who used to weigh 130. Now he weighs 140. <laughs> and uh, after 10 years and you would look at him and be like, you know, pathetic. And, and, and he would look at himself and be like, I'm pathetic. I suck, you know, or 10 years down the drain. Where in reality, he's this unbelievable, you know, world-class cellist hiding underneath. So it's not all about getting jacked. And this is certainly one thing comes from being jacked. You get jacked. Yeah. Uh, all of the things you think come with that in addition as benefits are by no means clear. So you certainly don't get laid more. I can tell you guys that from nasty lifetime of personal experience. I've actually never <laughs> been laid. Yeah, Chris, Crystal and I are waiting until marriage. So, um, but uh, it's a little joke there. But uh, but no, on a serious note, people think there's all these great things. You know, if you're passionate about the sport, you're passionate about getting jacked. I'm not the one to stop you. And I think you should keep going because you'll learn a ton and be a great coach, even if you don't get jacked yourself, if you're not a great responder. I, but if you're not sure if this is what you want to do, you know, there's all the shit to do. No, I think that's a brilliant answer. And I think from personal experience, I mean, I've, I've experienced this with a lot of even clients or a lot of people have approached me with this. And I've even thought it in the past kind of about myself. and Maybe I don't have the best genetics. And a lot of the time and with a lot of those people, I see it is they don't have a good understanding of just how long muscle takes to build. It's a long process. It's an investment that you have to adhere and be consistent with for years upon years upon years. The people with the best physiques, the best bodybuilders are the ones who have been doing it the longest, the majority of the time. So yeah, I think that those are some great words. And um, I think anyone listening to this is probably not going to start playing the cello or something. They're going to be like, no, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to actually work hard. I get smarter and be consistent. So <laughs> Cool. And if that shit doesn't work, the cello awaits. <laughs> awesome. Right. I'll let you go. And uh, a great, great Q&A again. And we've got some more questions to get to. So we can look forward to this again. So cheers, guys, for tuning in. Please, as always, please leave comments, questions, review the podcast. If you are looking to ask a question, um, I'll put a link below. I request questions in my free group over on Facebook in which you can get summaries from all the podcasts as well, because we do that every time, um, which is a great resource for you. Uh, And we'll catch Mike soon. So cheers, guys. Take care.